Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Okay, so I have, I have the pleasure to be with Peter Mattison uh, today uh, in the context of uh, our international conference on educational innovation. Thank you for being here, Peter. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So I was uh, talking to you about uh, your new Strategy 2030 that you just launched, uh, Edinburgh Strategy 2030. Mm. Uh, what are the highlights of that strategy? Um, so it's been an interesting process to develop a strategy. So I've been in Edinburgh less than two years, uh, or coming up two years now, having previously worked uh, in a similar job but in a very different place in, in Hong Kong. And when I arrived, Edinburgh already had a strategy published in 2016. And so my initial thought was rather than write a new strategy, we would just refresh the previous one in the light of some recent developments. Obviously, that strategy was written before Brexit was a possibility uh, and at a time when maybe some of the technological advances in education were uh, less well-developed. And so we felt that we needed to update the strategy. Um, and then uh, as I talked to students and staff and alumni and whatnot in my first few months, it became clear that there was an appetite for the development of a new strategy. And so that was the, that was the decision we made, was we would actually launch a new strategy. And we would try and make it distinctive. The, the allegation about university strategic plans is that they all look the same. And you could just take the name of the university out and transfer it across and it'd be exactly the same. So we wanted to do something distinctive. Um, and we think it has three or four really distinctive features. One is uh, it's based on a definition of the university's values. And this is something that's very strong in Scotland, the educational heritage. In our university is 436 years old. And that's the youngest of the four ancient universities. There are three universities even older than us. Um, and so Scotland has a very long history of educational Uh, achievement and educational uh, pioneering uh, techniques. And, and so we felt building our future on the heritage of our past was an important characteristic. And we sat down and defined what we, th we think in the modern world universities are challenged. There, there are alternative providers of education now and there are, the universities can't assume their place in society and maybe in the way that they did in the past. And so we felt we should define what it was that we really stand for. And, we, and we've set up a Uh, a, a series of values that people subscribe to. So that was the first distinctive feature. The second distinctive feature was that we focus very much on people. So thinking about our students, our staff, our alumni, the various other stakeholders that we engage with, that a, a university's main strength is its people, and we felt that we need to uh, focus on them, make sure that they have the best possible experience, and we want to make Edinburgh a, a destination of choice for the most talented students and staff from, from all over the world. Um, and then another uh, feature we decided to focus on was where should, we, where should we focus our priorities? How should we decide what the big issues are that we want to address? And we thought that aligning with the uh, United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, um, made sense. And, and, and in discussion with uh, students and staff, this was very popular, that we should, that we should align ourselves with, uh, with, with the Strategic Development Goals. Uh, knowing that we can't uh, deliver them all ourselves, but we can contribute. This seems like a good manifesto for a modern university with international credentials. Um, and then um, I, I suppose the, 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 the last item for, for us to, to think about was the, the sense that we need to respect the heritage of the university and think about the next 10 years. But this is a 400-year-old organization, and so 
Edinburgh was the home of the Enlightenment in the in the past. It was also the home of the something called the Edinburgh Conversations, which was a series of discussions that happened during the Cold War between the West and the East, where a neutral location was needed for behind-the-scenes discussions, and that happened in Edinburgh. And so we think Edinburgh has this convening power, and we'll talk later on maybe about data science and artificial intelligence. I know your own expertise in that area. And we think, so Edinburgh's very good at data science, and we think that there's a niche for us in terms of being the location for some of the important conversations that the world needs to have around the, particularly around the ethics, regulation, and law of artificial intelligence. So um, uh, we think that Edinburgh can have a convening role in that particular area. So these are these are the elements of our, of our strategy 2030. Um, it's a deliberately rather thin document. Uh, it's not very detailed. It's mostly setting high-level priorities and high-level principles. And then the, the detail of how we deliver those things sort of comes underneath that. Very interesting. So my, my first thought is how you deal um, with a tradition of 436 years and try at the same time to innovate in, uh, in education, uh, so, keeping with this heritage. So, so that's, that's exactly the challenge. And uh, that's what makes it exciting, in my opinion, because we do have this rich history and it's very long and detailed. Um, and yet, in my opinion, if universities are going to remain as significant to society as they have been during that time, they have to modernize. And a lot of this is embracing technology. Edinburgh's, under my predecessor, uh, Edinburgh has been um, putting a lot of effort into digital uh, education, both internally and externally. Um, and I think we've made a very good start. And I want to build on that because I think that's the, that ability to modernize a very ancient university that has very standard, established, rather traditional ways of doing things. That's exactly the challenge. And that's what makes it interesting. I think and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to come to this conference, because I need to learn from you. <laughs> So uh, what are your plans for um, moving the faculty and, and making them feel the urge to, uh, to change? So um, as you well know, and I know from years of experience, telling uh, academic faculty uh, how to do things or what to do is not a very productive uh, uh, method. Um, and so it's got to be a process of engagement and a process of um, almost getting people to believe that this is the right way to, to, to plan the future. And so, um, we, for example, we put a lot of effort into staff development. So at the same time as developing the technological platforms for online learning, whether this, is, whether this means uh, externally with MOOCs and, and, and online courses, or internally for our on-campus students, obviously the technological platform is very important and we've worked hard to develop that. But as well as that, we have to provide staff development. We have to provide education in the methodologies, what works well, what doesn't work well, uh, encouraging innovation uh, and, and, and a focus as much on the people as on the technology seems to us to be the right approach. So the focus will be on um, talking to faculty in the terms that they like is in research, is what the evidence says. Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, my, so running a university basically is a, is a people management job. It's basically, I mean, there's a bit of money management as well, but, um, but it's basically about managing people. And People um, respond well to anything which makes, gets them interested, gets them excited, allows them to think that we're trying to make their job easier or more interesting, rather than they don't respond well to anything which seems to them like it's going to make their life more complicated or they're going to have more hurdles to jump over. And so I think it's that, it's that 
sense of facilitating uh, technological developments, which is really important. And I think the other thing, this comes back a bit to the focus on people in the strategy 2030, the generation that really knows technology and really understands it and knows how to use it is not me. It's actually my students. Um, and I think the, the, you know, these, these young people have grown up with, with these handheld devices. They, they, they live their world, they live their lives through these devices in a way that when I was a kid, I didn't. And so to, to understand the, the way they want to receive their information, the way they want to receive their education, there's no substitute, in my opinion, from talking to them and listening to the younger generation. So engaging with the students, engaging with the younger staff, uh, and the technological experts seems to me to be the right way to to, to develop our, our future. Sure. I, I read that you won um, Teacher of the Year uh, prize uh, in the past. Mm. Uh, what can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, so I've, I, I tell people, so I've won two teaching awards, one in Cambridge when I was quite junior, uh, when I taught um, medical students in Cambridge. Um, and then the second one was when I worked in Bristol, where it was more about teaching the junior doctors in the hospital system. And I suppose, I don't know why I won the awards, you'd have to ask the people that voted for me, but <laughs> I think the secret really is about enthusiasm for your subject. I mean, I, in both those cases, I was teaching medicine, and that's my background, and it's still the subject that I feel I know best and I love best, and I still do a bit, a bit of teaching. So in my time as a university president, I haven't really been able to keep up much of my research. I've got more and more distant from my research. I still have a little bit of involvement, but not much. But I have managed to keep up some of my teaching because that's the thing that I think I can do well. I, I'm in my own subject, which is kidney medicine, um, uh, I keep up with the, the knowledge, I keep up with the, the developments, and so I think I can still provide relevant, up-to-date teaching in that. And I enjoy it. It's, it's, it's interesting and exciting, and I enjoy doing it. And I think the best teachers are enthusiasts. Um, I can't say I won any prizes for my technological ability. I didn't. I mean, I, 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 at those times, those prizes were both a while ago. And at that time, I wouldn't say I was doing anything very innovative or, or revolutionary. It was more just a question of trying to make a subject which is, within medicine, seen by many people as very complicated and difficult and esoteric. Uh, I don't think it is. I think kidney medicine is very straightforward uh, and, and really can be... Um, explained and simplified in a way that makes people realize that it's not quite so difficult. And so that, that's the challenge I set myself. And regarding the use of uh, technology in education in the university, uh, you say that um, that's one of the goals of uh, the, your new plan and also some of the things that your predecessor uh, made in the university. Do you have some early uh, projects or success uh, that you have implemented? So, so we were an early, um, uh, Edinburgh was an early adapter, uh, early adopter of, of MOOCs. So um, uh, again, that was before I arrived, but we have 2.7 million people enrolled on, on our MOOCs. So we have a very large sort of MOOC population, if you like. And, and I think uh, actually the same was true of the University of Hong Kong, where I was before I moved to Edinburgh. We also had uh, very early MOOCs. Um, and so that, that, that was the first um, large-scale example of online education. And at the time, people were predicting that this meant the end of the university as we know it and that this was going to replace universities. I never believed that. The year of the MOOC, I never believed that that was the case. And, and, and so it's proved. I mean, the, the, the population that undertake MOOCs is different from the population that undertake university education largely, largely older and Maybe, maybe people returning to education or, or taking up education for the first time. So 
Uh, I think MOOCs are an addition to uh, universities rather than a replacement for them. But then what's happened, I think, in the time since the MOOC revolution is that people have started to think, well, actually, online education is about far more than MOOCs. Um, it's about much more, you know, these, I like these micromasters. We've just launched uh, the, the UK's first micromasters in collaboration with edX. And I know that uh, Anand Agrawal is another speaker at the conference. Yes, he's, he's somebody yes. I've worked with both in Hong Kong and since I've been in Edinburgh. And I'm very proud of the fact that Anand says that he believes the University of Edinburgh is the, the best university outside North America for online education. So we're very proud of that. Uh, accolade and we have to work hard to keep that up because now the competition is very fierce. Everybody now is looking to see how they can develop online education. But in collaboration with uh, Anand and his colleagues at edX, we've launched the MicroMasters. That's in predictive analytics in the business school. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, two more MicroMasters ready to ready to launch. So we think that's a model that will that will be uh, very effective. So you, 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 you can gather some people that may later go on and do a a formal masters, or they may not, but whatever, they get some credentials from the micromasters. Um, and then I think the most exciting of all is the way that we're trying to think about using digital education for our regular on-campus students. We know that, um, for example, we now record all our lectures, um, and students like that. They like the they like the ability to access the lectures uh, outside the actual timetable lecture time, um, and, and we're learning with some very interesting uh, learning analytics. Um, about the way they use those lecture recordings. They, they don't sit down and listen to the whole lecture again. What they do is they scan through and find a particular piece that they wanted to get clarified or a particular section. So the average use of those lecture recordings is quite short. And when I first saw that data, I thought that suggested that we were not making something that was very interesting or informative. Mm -hmm. But I'm told by people that know more about this than me that no, that's wrong, actually. That's exactly the way you would predict that young people will use lecture recordings because that's the way they, they're used to accessing information in small small bites. So there's some examples there. And then I think the, the other thing that I think we feel that we've done well, and I mentioned this before, is the, is the aspect of staff development. You know, we have this slogan that every teacher should be a digital teacher. And so we have at the moment only a subset of our faculty that really actively embrace digital learning. Um, and we have many more that don't, and it's either because they don't have the technological ability or they, they haven't ever been exposed to the excitement that can be digital learning, uh, or they feel somehow rather suspicious or rather uncertain about it. And so we think providing staff development so that every teacher that's providing online learning has had some uh, education, some qualification for themselves, we think that's also very important so that we're not just educating the, the students, but we're educating the staff as well. So, uh, I, I also read that um, there's a declaration of Edinburgh, like uh, the data science city or something like that, uh, that yeah, you'll become to data before, science. Yeah, so that, that slogan is that we want Edinburgh to be the data capital of Europe. Data capital. Um, and uh, there's some justification for that slogan. It's a rather grandiose slogan, and there's a couple of other cities, particularly uh, Bologna and Helsinki, that might also make the same claim. Um, but the, the justification really is, is a couple of things. Firstly, Edinburgh was the second uh, university on the planet to teach artificial intelligence. So the first in the world was Stanford, and Edinburgh was second. So back in the 1960s, when artificial intelligence was still unfashionable, Edinburgh was teaching it, and then we've been teaching it ever since. And so we have a, a long 60-70 year uh, legacy of teaching artificial intelligence. And we, in terms of uh, computer science, we call it informatics, but, but that subject, we're number one in the UK in the last um, assessment of 
research activity, uh, Edinburgh was ranked number one. Um, and so we think we have credentials in data science and artificial intelligence. And the slogan to be the data capital of Europe was adopted by a program that started before my, my arrival, so I can't take any credit for its design, although the award was actually made since I got there and, and I'll be held responsible for the delivery of it. But it's called, it's called the Edinburgh and South East Scotland City Region Deal, and we abbreviate that to the City Deal. So we call it the City Deal. And the City Deal is a, an initiative by the UK government based in London to stimulate economic uh, development in the regions outside London. You know, there's a feeling in the UK that a lot of the uh, economic development is in the southeast of the country. And the government has recognised that and has been trying to provide funding to initiatives around the rest of the UK to try and allow other parts of the UK to, to develop. And these things are called city deals. And the difference that with the Edinburgh city deal was that the university plays a very leading role in it. In most other city deals, universities are either not involved at all or only involved in a rather peripheral way. The Edinburgh Regional City Deal was led by the University of Edinburgh, and it's all based around data science. And so the idea is we're going to use our, our heritage and our, our legacy in data science and artificial intelligence to address the really important problems for society. So things like clean energy, clean water, food security, cyber security, public health, uh, these kinds of things. And, and that's, what the, that's where we believe that Edinburgh can be the data capital of Europe, because we're number one in the UK, and uh, I'm sure you're well aware that most of the top-ranked universities in the EU are actually in the UK. So when Brexit happens, uh, depending on which league table you look at, uh, in the QS, for example, the top nine universities in the EU are all in the UK. But the, the highest-ranked non-EU, non-UK EU university is Delft, which is ranked at number 50. So uh, in the, the, and there are nine, including Edinburgh, there are nine British universities above that. In the other major ranking, the Times Higher, it's, not, it's a bit more generous to continental Europe. There, there are six UK universities above the, the first non-UK. Um, uh, so it's clear that some of the best universities in Europe are in the UK. And so if we figure that if we're the best in the UK at informatics, that makes us one of the best in Europe. Edinburgh has this convening power that I referred to earlier on with the, the Enlightenment and the Edinburgh Conversations. And so we think as a place in the world where the important developmental work around data science, artificial intelligence, um, uh, particularly around the ethics and the regulation and the law associated with artificial intelligence. We feel that that can't be led by the United States and it can't be led by China. Um, uh, if it's going to be somewhere in Europe, then why not Edinburgh? We're number one in, in the UK, so we think Edinburgh is a good location for that. So that's our sort of justification for the, for the, for the strap line, if you like. But in reality, if there are two or three places in Europe that can lead those conversations, then you know, we're, we're very happy to be one of them. Uh, we just think that it's, a, it's an example of a university focusing on its strengths and knowing that we can't lead the world in everything. But what can we lead the world in? Well, we think we can be very significant in data science and its, and its various applications. Uh, this ethics uh, conversation, I think, is very interesting. Many people are worried about um, the use of artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence normally works by learning the behavior of people and then reproducing that behavior. So one of the fears is that uh, AI will reproduce and automatize and make it a more efficient, all the racial, uh, ethnical, uh, religious, or whatever bias that we can have mm -hmm. as humans sometimes. So 
what are the discussions that you're having inside so, the university? So that's absolutely right. And I heard a fabulous example recently, which which I, I was at. A, there was a conference in in Edinburgh called the Spanish Tertulias. I didn't know what a Tertulias was, but it basically means a convening of you know this word convening of minds for a discussion of a relevant topic. And at this meeting, there was a lot of discussion about artificial intelligence. And one of the uh, overseas delegates related an anecdote, which I thought was really instructive. So he said that there was a, you know, on Amazon, if you buy um, a product, when you get to the bottom of the page, it says, you may also be interested in the following, or previous people that bought this also bought this. Um, and apparently that linkage is done by artificial intelligence. So no humans are involved. This is just pattern recognition. And uh, the example was that someone bought um, a set of uh, peton, the, the the metal bull that French people play to play bull in the in the street in the in the town squares, um, and someone bought a, a set of these metal bull, um, and at the bottom of the page, when uh, it suggested what else that this person might wish to buy, the items that came up were a yellow vest, a gilet jaune, and a gas mask. Uh, so the suggestion was that someone had bought bull and then was also buying a yellow vest and a gas mask. And of course, this is a, a, a reputational concern for Amazon. And so apparently what Amazon did in response to that was introduce, reintroduce a human being to sense check that kind of association so that you can't just make it automatic. Someone has to sense check it. And I find that quite reassuring that there's still a role for human beings. You can't always make these linkages without somebody, a, a human, saying, does this make sense or does this have any reputational consequences? So there's an example, if you like, of where a little bit of regulation or a little bit of human intervention uh, makes artificial intelligence more effective. Sure. I, I also read that uh, there's uh, some software used in the United States in courts to decide if uh, one person can follow the trial outside of inside a jail. And uh, the, what they found is that there is reproducing racial bias uh, mm. in uh, Postal codes, uh, let's say, and so it's very dangerous that uh, you let just uh, an algorithm that work is trained. I agree. And then the other example I heard, which is also interesting, is that if you if you're looking at someone's credit rating, um, uh, then if you make a payment to a divorce lawyer, that predicts a deterioration in your credit status about six months later. So you could say anybody making a payment to to a divorce lawyer should have their credit rating down regulated. It's a very interesting example. I mean, what's, where's the ethics and the regulation and the law of that? You know, I mean, it's just, so, so sometimes these associate, because it's, it's basically about making statistical associations and these associations sometimes are valid, but they have ethical implications. And, and I think there's a very interesting role for universities to play in, in analyzing all of that. And in many ways, a bit like my own field in medicine, I think the, the technology is advancing faster than the, the regulation, if you like. So if you think in, in medicine about what's possible now antenatally, so before the baby's born, you can make all sorts of interventions, you can analyze the baby's genetics, you can you can study things about the baby, but the baby's still inside the mother. So who's who's responsible for the consent? Who, who decides uh, about that individual that the moment is still inside the mother? So you know, that, that technology about what's possible in terms of antenatal diagnosis and treatment now has gone much faster than the regulatory framework that's, that's built up to, to, uh, to manage it. There's one last uh, question. We've been talking for a while. Um, you say that one of the uh, 
parts of your new 2030 plan uh, or, or strategy is the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. And I understand there, there are some plans to um, work the talk so that the, the campus become a, a sustainable campus. Yeah. What yeah. are the challenges for a campus to become sustainable? So um, there are many challenges, but we, you're right. We do believe that this can't just be words. This has got to be actions. We've got to be able to measure and demonstrate our own commitments. Um, so we're rapidly trying to convert all of our vehicles to electric vehicles. We have a lot of a fleet of vehicles that are involved in the university. We're converting those to electric vehicles. Although, and I know there are arguments about the sustainability of electric vehicles, mm -hmm. but we generally feel that that's the right thing to do. All of our new buildings are built according to sustainable principles. So, you know, we're trying to have um, modern forms of heating and energy generation. Um, but we have to be realistic. Firstly, the, the university uh, has 550 buildings across Edinburgh, and many of them are old. And so many of them are not uh, environmentally friendly. Um, so we have to modernise to the extent that we can, but we have to accept that some of those buildings will, will, will be much more of a challenge in, in terms of sustainability. And the other thing which I've tried to articulate in the time that I've been there is that I think the realistic um, assessment of our position in terms of climate sustainability has to include recognition that if we want to be a research-intensive university and we want to have international credentials, then we are going to generate a carbon footprint. We, it, it's, it's unavoidable. We have international... 43% of our students are from outside the UK. And so a lot of those students travel and they travel home, so there's a lot of air travel involved. We have our researchers traveling around the world, uh, you know, talking at conferences and interacting with other researchers. And then we have some activities. We, we've got the UK's supercomputer based in Edinburgh. Uh, and obviously that generates an enormous carbon footprint. So we can't, be, uh, we can't hide from the fact that we're going to generate a carbon footprint. What I think we have to do is we have to take every step we can to minimize that, the, things, you know, the types of things we've talked about but also to offset, genuinely offset our carbon footprint in other ways. And so we're interested in, in uh, planting trees and regenerating peat bogs in Scotland, where Scotland has very large rural areas where we can genuinely produce carbon offset. This is not a question of buying carbon offset from some other source. This is about planting new trees and regenerating peat bogs so that we're contributing to carbon offset uh, nationally. And... Um, I think that combination, doing, doing the things that we can to reduce our carbon footprint, but also recognising that the reality of our activities is that we're going to generate a carbon footprint, which we then need to measure and offset. That's the basis of our strategy. And we, on the, with that uh, paired set of approaches, we think we can deliver carbon neutrality uh, by 2040. That's our pledge. Great. I, I, I hope that you uh, achieve it. And we also have plans on... Uh, working more on the sustainable development goals, so I think that would be during your stay a, a good uh, conversation. And Definitely, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I've spent my entire life working in education, and, and I believe that education holds the answer to many of the world's great challenges. But what we have to do is we have to focus on the things that we can do, and 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 be realistic about it, and measure things, and measure our progress. And the SDGs just provide a suitable framework for us to, uh, to, to decide where we're going to focus our efforts. Grace, uh, thank you very much, Peter, uh, for this interview. My pleasure, Pepe. Thank you for inviting me. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey 
and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Editrends producer, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Editrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content. <laughs>